Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Richard Schaus, author of Lee is Trapped and Must Be Taken. Richard Schaus, author of Lee is Trapped and Must Be Taken. The title of your book is in quotes. Who are you quoting there? That is a quote from an early biography of Edwin Stanton, who was the Secretary of War at the time. And he is quoted as saying to Mr. Lincoln, the president, um, quoted by the author, Lee is trapped and must be taken. And that was not the working title, but we submitted a number of alternative titles and that was the one that, that it was rather direct, it was rather important sounding, something had to happen immediately, and it was from the Secretary of War, and it had the word Lee in it, uh, <laughs> and Lee is trapped. You don't hear about Lee being trapped very often when you study the Civil War in, in the East. So it fit, and then when we saw how the cover was set up, when we got the first uh, look at what the cover was going to be. It just, it fit right in and it looked totally appropriate and then we added the, the 11 Faithful Days at the bottom, but it, it was one of those titles that kind of stood out and grabs you when you see it. And that's what, of course, we were hoping for. So your subtitle is 11 Faithful Days After Gettysburg, July 4th to the 14th. So the battle was July 1st to 3rd. On the 4th, July 4th, when the sun came up, who was where? The, uh, the Union Army maintain its its position from the right on Culp's Hill coming around down Cemetery Hill, East Cemetery Hill, and down Cemetery Ridge and through the round tops, uh, little round top, big round top, and then swung around a little bit to the uh, to the east, the left, left flank was covered by the part of the Sixth Corps, and the Confederate Army was along Cemetery Ridge, which was the opposite to the west of, of the Union position. Lee had pulled out of town uh, later on the 3rd and the 4th. He consolidated his line in preparation for the retreat he knew he was going to have to make, which would begin later on the 4th with the uh, wagon trains of the supplies and especially the trains of any of the wounded that could be moved, uh, beginning the long journey back to the Potomac River and back into Virginia. Lee knew he had to retreat? I mean, there was no thinking of fighting on the 4th? General Lee had realized after the fighting died down, ended on, on the 3rd with uh, what's known as Pickett's Charge, uh, commanded by General Longstreet, which is more than just Pickett's division, that that attack had failed. And Lee had been in Gettysburg since the 1st of July. And his logistics situation was critical. He was low on ammunition. He was low on food for his men, food and water. Of course, this is July. It was hot, and they went through both the troops and the, and the animals that were with the Army of Northern Virginia. They went through a lot of water, a lot of fodder, and a lot of food. And Lee just was not going to be able to maintain his position. He felt that he had tried the Union line, as he indicated in his report, and he had failed to break it, 
to drive Lee away, uh, to drive General Meade away, and he determined, and he explained it to General Imboden, who commanded one of the wagon trains, the escort for one of the wagon trains uh, that would head back towards the Potomac River, that he was going to retreat. Now he did, he did kind of invite an attack on the 4th, which Meade did not take him up on that offer. Uh, he was ready. Uh, they still had enough ammunition, enough artillery and small arms ammunition, that they could have possibly fought for another day. Uh, he didn't want to because you don't want to run short. <laughs> but he had determined that he would begin the long march, actually a retreat back to Virginia. He would later say he had accomplished his mission, he had acquired considerable amount of supplies, he had taken the war out of the South, and he had inflicted serious casualties on General Meade's army, as far as he could tell. Obviously, on the first day, they drove Union forces from outside of town, north, northwest and west of town, to their position, which was just too strong for Lee to successfully assault. How many soldiers did Lee still have at the end of the battle? It's hard to say. He had approximately, I would say, about 50,000, between 40 and 50,000. Unfortunately for, his, for him, he would lose another approximately 5,000 troops between the end of the battle and by the time they retreated across the Potomac. And that 5,000 to, to his army was a considerable amount of men. These were stragglers. Some were just AWOL. Some had just had enough. A lot of deserters? Um, a lot were deserters. There are reports from especially from Union Cavalry commands, of picking up Confederate soldiers. They just found them in various locations to, along the retreat route, and it would just send them north. And, but it was that 5,000 is generally not recognized that in addition to some 20,000 casualties at Gettysburg, another 5,000 troops literally disappeared from Lee's army. So by the time he got to his, what ended up being his position at Williamsport, he had around 40,000, 45,000 men available to occupy an almost 10-mile long line until the river receded and he was able to have his engineers rebuild the pontoon bridge at Falling Waters. They rebuilt it at Williamsport. It had been partially destroyed by Union Cavalry on the 4th of July, and he would have to have that built uh, that bridge, uh, pontoon bridge, reconstructed down at Falling Waters and then moved to Falling Waters so he could get um, all his wagons, his artillery, and that across. And waiting till the ford became, till the water, the river became fordable at Williamsport. Up until that time, he had a little ferry that he was using with some flatboats to get um, all of his wagons, all of his wounded, and almost 5,000 Union prisoners of war that he took with him uh, that were quite a burden, but they were, they were escorted by Confederate troops and taken down and ended up in various prison facilities uh, in Richmond and down in the South. Why did he take the prisoners with him? Wasn't that more trouble than it's worth? Part of, that's part of the reason I think that, that General Meade and the Union High Command allowed um, for those prisoners not to be Parole. They had a parole system. They would, the prisoner would sign, I will not take up arms against until, it's like an exchange thing, until one Confederate soldier is re replaced and then he, he's paroled. And then they go back after there's an exchange. 
Well, the Confederates certainly had a manpower shortage, whereas the Union uh, did not. They had become the draft, but they had a manpower uh, advantage over the South. So any Southern Southerner captured uh, would be kept in the North and Central prison camp, whereas if he was exchanged, he could go back and pick up a musket and fight again. So those prisoners of war from the Union, approximately 5,000, were not allowed to or not told not to accept parole simply for that reason. From a manpower standpoint, they could not be replaced as easily as Union soldiers could. So it wouldn't have just made the, the retreat easier to not have to deal with these 5,000, just get out of here? It would have been, but General Lee had determined he would take those prisoners of war. Maybe they could be paroled later and exchanged, but a lot of these men would go right back to their units and maybe in a couple of days be facing his men again. At least if he had them with him, they wouldn't be firing at them at some later point. Now, was it, how was the decision made to go south? I mean, if the, if the Union Army was there at Gettysburg up on high ground and staying where they were, couldn't a 45, 50,000 man army go someplace else, go north and cause more mischief? Well, Lee was, Lee was short on ammunition. He had a significant amount of casualties. He did have a lot of casualties who would be returning to the Army once they healed. And again, with a manpower shortage, he didn't want to lose those men. They left a considerable number of their wounded who could not be moved at Gettysburg. But his ability to create more mayhem and more mischief, if you will, had really expired at, at Gettysburg. It, it was over. He knew it. He was not there to occupy territory. He had basically gone north to supply his army because they were starving. They, were, um, they needed ammunition. They needed artillery. They needed wagons. They took almost every horse they could find, cattle, sheep. Uh, the amount of, of plunder is what it was referred to that was sent back south was incredible. Did they leave anything behind? They tried not to. Uh, they, they, uh, General Lee, of course, uh, had orders out that everything would either be paid for in Confederate script or they would be given a receipt, which they could, the farmers and the local merchants and that would be able to, after the war was over, they would be able to go and draw the funds for their property uh, from the Southern government, which they fully expected the Southerners felt would, there would be a Confederacy. So, Now, meantime, on the Union side, we have General Meade, who had just taken over a couple days before the, the Battle of Gettysburg. First of all, how much credit does Meade get for winning Gettysburg? <laughs> this, that's a very, very interesting question. Um, General Meade was placed in command on the 28th of June. As General Lee's forces were just outside of Harrisburg, uh, just south of the Susquehanna and in that area, and actually in the area we're in, um, they, were, they were there. Uh, General Ewell's Corps had the lead. Uh, General Hill's Corps was following along, and they would be the ones that were engaged first at Gettysburg, and General Longstreet was behind them at Chambersburg. So the Southern Army was spread out from Chambersburg all the way up to the Susquehanna. And General Meade, when he took command, well, was placed in command, he, uh, he felt his mission was to relieve the pressure 
of, the, of Lee's advance on Harrisburg. It was a southern, it was the capital of a very important northern state, and the last thing they wanted was the capital being invaded by a, a southern army. Well, once um, General Lee found out, somewhat to his surprise, that Union forces were farther north than he thought they had been, he ordered a concentration down in the Cashtown, Gettysburg area to bring his army together because an army spread out that much is not in a position to fight a battle, especially against a superior force. General Meade was slow to recognize exactly what General Lee's intentions were. He was getting multiple information from multiple sources, and he had always assumed it was his belief the Confederate Army was about 100,000 men strong, which outnumbered his army, which was about 90, 95,000. And it was, in reality, how many? Uh, Lee had about 75,000. Now, General Meade had some sources, a lot of sources, actually, were provide, providing him very accurate information. Uh, he had the Bureau of Military Information, the BMI, which was the forerunner of modern in, uh, intelligence operations. And Colonel Sharp headed that, and he was providing General Meade with some very accurate data on both locations and the numbers of Confederate troops. He had orders of battle drawn up, and he operated with civilian scouts. I want to ask you about that, because you have a map in this book that shows a lot of different observation points, and one of them is marked by a telescope. Did they really have people like on hilltops with yes, they telescopes? Yes, they, they certainly flags? did. They, it was the, the Army Signal Corps, and they had signal officers. They had a signal officer and men with each of the seven infantry corps, to an, and then Meade's headquarters had a signal station. So especially at Gettysburg, they were virtually in, in a communication between Meade's headquarters and virtually every corps in his army. So yes, they occupied the high ground uh, wherever they could find it. They did have the telescopes. They communicated via the flags. Uh, which was a standard procedure. They also used lights, uh, but often fog in the conditions, especially when you have the morning fog in the summer, it often uh, prohibited that kind of communication. Sometimes they could see the flags, sometimes they couldn't. Little Round Top is probably the most famous signal station, uh, and there is even a monument there, a marker to the signal corps. But there were uh, signal stations with, with every infantry corps that Meade had. So he could communicate with his corps commanders via the flag system and via his. So they provided communications, plus they also provided observation of Confederate movements. So that was, uh, and that's one of the things was our emphasis on the intelligence operations, and that was intelligence gathering. Being able to observe what the Confederates were doing, where they were retreating, who was moving where, wagon trains, infantry, artillery. Uh, While we're on the subject, I want to ask you about spies, because you're right here at, uh, one morning at Williamsport. This is Williamsport, Maryland. A young lady with a boy on horseback rode into town past a picket and an hour or so later tried to ride back out. The guards had ordered that no one should be allowed to pass, stopped her. Her appeal almost succeeded until one soldier identified her as a spy who had come in to observe their position. First of all, pretty gutsy. Second of all, having a little kid on the horse with you. Yeah. It, it is. There were, again, being that 
Maryland was a state that had troops in both sides. It, depending on what part of the state you were in, was what were the allegiances. And the word spy was used a lot. Um, there was a lot of information exchange that would come because there was no code of conduct, if you will, no for the military saying name, rank, serial number. Uh, and both sides would gather a lot of information simply from prisoners or from civilians. Uh, in fact, civilians provided a lot of information because maps at the time were not always that accessible. They were not always that good. And a location, well, what's that hill called? And where does this road go? And so they would try to get civilians to provide them that information. And civilians would provide intelligence, whether the individuals were exactly you know, spies or not, is certainly up for debate. They were just passing on information. Uh, I remember a little boy um, during, I think it was the second day at Gettysburg, the union, union, a union reconnaissance was moving out, and he said something like, there's a whole passel of rebs in that woods. Okay, was he a spy? He was just passing on that he had seen a lot of rebel troops in an area where, where the good guys, who Pennsylvanian, you know, being blue, men in blue are the good guys, he wanted to make sure they knew they were, there's a passel of rebs in there. And so, but they, there were attempts made, the commanders realized how much information was being exchanged. And they tried to keep it so at least some of their movements might be a surprising or a secret, but it, it often didn't work out that way. We also have this uh, Sergeant Milton Klein. You refer to him as the audacious Klein was adept at passing himself off as a rebel, and he learned from Southern troops that there was a large Confederate force at Hagerstown. So did, did each side have a network of actual spies who acted like we expect spies to act? Sergeant Klein was a member of the Bureau of Military Information, and they would... Generally, they would call themselves scouts. They would either wear civilian clothes or they would wear the uniforms, Union or Confederate uniforms, and go to obtain information and then make their way back. Harrison, who was Longstreet's scout that informed him that the Union troops were farther north, that they had actually crossed the Potomac, uh, and, and Longstreet took Harrison, who was famous. Uh, his, he became more known from the movie Gettysburg because he has a, a significant role in that film. He again provided, he had worked behind the lines. He was an actor, so he knew how to pass himself off as a poor civilian or farmer, whatever. And so there was a lot of exchange, again, of information. And both sides would, would interview or ask civilians what they had seen, hopefully. And often civilians would see a, an infantry regiment and think they were looking at a whole brigade or a division. So they'd see 200 Confederate soldiers and think that they had seen 2,000 because they'd never seen anything like that before. They'd see three or four artillery pieces and say there were 50, there were 100. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's where the exaggerated numbers came from because civilians had never seen anything like that before. So does Meade get credit for winning the battle? Meade... I've looked into this situation a lot, and I think Meade is probably overrated in terms of his actual contribution to the victory. Meade relied on his subordinates. Um, to, actually, his subordinates began the battle, 
continued parts of the battle and ended the battle. Uh, and George Meade's contribution, other than being in command of the army, was more minimal than, than we would see. He got credit simply because he was the army commander. But we have to keep in mind, he wasn't even there on the first day when the Union troops were driven out uh, and through the town and up and they established themselves on the position. That position was established without Meade even knowing about it. So his job was the head of the Army of the Potomac? Yes. And then there were other armies out there headed by other people? There were other armies in various other locations. Um, General Grant was fighting in the West, and you had a number of, of other armies. You had the Army of the Cumberland, uh, Army, Union armies named after rivers. Uh, but Meade was the, Meade's Army of the Potomac was the army in the East. That was the one that was, um, the, his mission was to defeat General Lee's Army of Northern Virginia and the secondary mission to protect Washington and Baltimore. What kind of reputation did he have as a general? What kind of general was he? I mean, aggressive, uh, cautious? Meade was a cautious officer. There is a huge difference between a brigade commander, which is where Meade started out, and then you move to division command, and then corps command, and then he became the army commander. And Meade was a, an efficient officer as long as he had a solid commander providing him instructions. Meade would carry out his orders very, very well. He was a, a very brave man. He was wounded in action earlier in the war. Um, he was cautious. And as he progressed in, in rank and responsibility, he became a little more conscious. One, cautious. One of the things we point out in the book uh, and it's a fascinating aspect of Meade's personality and his leadership style. He critiqued his predecessors in command of the army. And he kept, fortunately, in his letters to his wife, who was his, his chief supporter, he provided information that he critiqued his predecessors. He critiqued General McClellan, what he thought McClellan had done right and what he thought McClellan had done wrong. Then he critique General Burnside, who took command after McClellan was dismissed, then General Hooker, who preceded Meade in command. He analyzed their performance, and as near as we can say it was so, he wouldn't make the mistakes that he said that they had made. And in McClellan's case, he said that McClellan, most of his predecessors, they didn't take risks. They needed to be more aggressive. But he was... <laughs> General Meade found out that it was a lot different from the outside looking in than from the inside looking out. And he found out how much responsibility and how much pressure there was being the army commander as opposed to being a corps commander. Unfortunately, his only corps command experience in action was at Chancellorsville, and his corps, which was the Fifth Corps, was not heavily engaged. So he really did not have the chance to be be a leader to display leadership uh, as a corps commander, and then suddenly he's the army commander, and everything, the buck stopped with General Meade, and he found out that's a lot more difficult to deal with than being a corps commander or a division commander in observing the, the mistakes that his predecessors had made, and then he was the guy that was responsible. The decisions would be his, because he was, he was the army commander. 
And one of the things we pointed out, that caution that he didn't have to really display, that he didn't have to worry about being a defensive, in a defensive position at Gettysburg, the retreat and his ability to pursue and engage Lee again would be critical because he would have to assume the offensive in order to engage Lee, and he would have to do so fairly quickly because he knew eventually that Lee was headed for the Potomac to recross and to get back in Virginia. And General Meade had written his wife, I would rather fight Lee in Maryland, in Pennsylvania, than to have to fight him in Virginia because that's going closer to Lee's home ground. Um, so General Meade would be, it would be a true test of his capabilities as a commander in those days following what became the end of the battle, which ended on the 3rd, and when Lee actually crossed on the 14th. And he did have opportunities that were unexpected because the Potomac rose and the pontoon bridge at Falling Waters had been destroyed. So he had the opportunity that probably wouldn't have been there had everything been normal. Even Lee acknowledged that had the river not risen, had the bridge not been damaged, he would have had his army safely back into Virginia. Now he couldn't do it. So he was forced to assume a defensive position around Williamsport until the river receded and he could get the pontoon bridge redone, which gave Meade an opportunity to either cut off Lee's retreat, which doesn't seem to have been a factor, even though it was possible, uh, not a lot of references to it. He had bridges coming down that he could have had thrown up, and he could have sent forces across to try and cut off Lee's retreat. Again, that's one of the major factors we look at in our book, was it wasn't just an option for Meade to attack Lee at Williamsport, just a headlong tradi traditional frontal assault. He did have other options, which would be to cut off Lee's retreat and essentially box him in, and it wouldn't be a siege necessarily, but he could, and then with Lee trapped, really trapped for more than just a number of days, uh, it would give Meade options, but he never made the decision to try and cut off Lee's escape. Well, the, the Army of the Potomac went through quite a few generals in the war, and then they ended up on Meade. How long did Meade have the job? Meade had the job from the 28th of June up until the end of the war. There was the one factor that changed the whole situation was an officer, a general named Grant. Um, after Gettysburg and after Lee's successful retreat, getting his army back into Virginia virtually unscathed with, all, with a considerable number of his wounded safely back in the South, uh, Union prisoners of war, and a lot of supplies taken back for further use. Plus, the war had been moved out of the South, so it gave the Southern farmers a chance to harvest their crops and do that. And one of Lee's goals, as he stated, was to move the war out of the South, and that worked for a while. Throughout the rest of 1863, General Meade virtually was not able to get himself into a position where he could attack and do further damage to Lee's army. And that's throughout the rest of the year. And the authorities in Washington, from the president on down, were disappointed and they were dismayed to the extent that they felt that General Meade would be capable of protecting the North, protecting Washington, D.C. from any further assault. But 
he was not going to be able, he was not the general who would take the war and, and defeat Lee or engage him again. So Lee and Meade kind of did a waltz, each one trying to find the right position to attack the other. Uh, offensive tactics hadn't worked very well for either army. General Meade had grown up in the army seeing a number of defeats based on frontal attacks that failed, Fredericksburg being the prominent one. And General Lee, his attacks at Gettysburg had failed, and that made an impression on General Meade, having seen the Confederates defeated and seeing the refuse and the carnage in front of Cemetery Ridge from the failed attack on the 3rd, it made Meade even more hesitant to go on the offensive and to attack Lee. All he'd ever seen was defeat up until Gettysburg, and then there was the glory of the victory. A number of times they would refer to, we don't want to tarnish the victory at Gettysburg by possibly losing if we attack Lee at Williamsport or somewhere where he, he's dug in as much as possible. If we attack and fail, that will tarnish the victory at Gettysburg. So that, was, that added to his hesitation. General Meade stated a number of times he would assume the offensive if the chances of success were certain. And in military operations, chance of success is never certain. Uh, but that was, Meade, uh, Meade stipulated that a number of times until we were certain of success. Then he, would, then he would move. It takes a long time to make yourself ready to the point where you feel you're certain of success, especially if the other guy still outnumbers you. And despite being reinforced, Meade still stated uh, in his testimony uh, in 1864, before the Joint Committee of Congress, that he was outnumbered at Gettysburg and after the battle. So that was part of his caution and his hesitancy. How long have you been interested in the Civil War history? Um, since I can remember, uh, I've, I've always been a his, history buff, if you will, and Gettysburg has always appealed to me. I have studied the battle since I can remember, uh, and it's fascinating because there's so much so much written about it, but so much we don't know. And it's hard to say, well, there's, there's books and books and books. Our book covered an aspect of the campaign that really is either not touched on in other histories or is given a couple of paragraphs or a couple pages. And, and the more we got into it, the more we saw how much information was out there and how little had actually been passed on in terms of the Union pursuit, if you will, a following is more likely, uh, the proper term, he followed Lee, just to make sure that Lee didn't commit any more of the mischief you mentioned. Um, but that was an aspect of the campaign which really has been untouched, yet there's a lot out there if you go digging for it. There are some fascinating sources that we came across that we tried to, to pass on. Uh, plus, of course, the intelligence aspect, which was one of our primary factors in looking at what options were available to Meade. Generally, you'll see the histories that say, well, Meade decided not to attack Lee's dug-in army at Williamsport. And everybody says, okay, yeah, that makes sense. He wouldn't do that. But there's more than just the frontal attack. As I stated, there was the ability to cut off Lee's retreat. How would he have done that? Where would he have gone? He could have crossed uh, at a number of places, Harper's Ferry. Um, Harper's Ferry had a bridge that was partially destroyed one of the railroad bridges, which could have easily been um, rebuilt or replanked, if you will, to take 
um, cavalry, infantry across. But part of Meade's caution was he was afraid that if they repaired the bridge, the Confederates would cross themselves. Now, Parpers Ferry is quite away from Williamsport, which was where Lee was trying to get away from. This is Williamsport, Maryland. Maryland, yes, mm -hmm. Williamsport, Maryland. Um, but there were pontoon bridges ready to be put up at any point where, Lee, or where General Meade might want to move troops to get across the river where he could flank and get, in, get into Lee's rear and cut off Lee's retreat. Was there a, a, a split among uh, Meade's generals about whether to attack or cut him off or hold back? <laughs> That's, Meade's generals is another fascinating subject which we, which we go into fairly good detail in the book. General Meade at Gettysburg lost a number of his most trusted and capable general officers, General uh, John Reynolds, who was killed early on the first day's fighting. He was, uh, General Meade relied heavily on Reynolds. Reynolds had been Meade's commander earlier in the war. And Reynolds was an, a very aggressive officer. And part of, it was, it was Reynolds' decision to fight at Gettysburg uh, to try and keep, keep the Confederate forces out of the controlling the road hub, the many roads that ran in and out of Gettysburg. Reynolds was dead. General Winfield Scott Hancock, who had commanded the Second Corps, he was seriously wounded at Gettysburg on the third day. So that took two corps commanders, very trusted. Hancock receives a lot of credit for the victory at Gettysburg. Hancock's name is prem, prem, prominent, and so is Reynolds' name, very prominent in terms of the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, often you'll people will recognize those names before George Meade's name. And you had a general who was, oh, probably the least favorite of Meade's commanders at Gettysburg, which is Dan, Dan Sickles, Third Corps Commander General, Major General Daniel Sickles, a New York lawyer, Tammany Hall lawyer and Democrat, uh, a, polit a political general, very unpopular among the West Pointers. But uh, Sickles was a very aggressive commander and tried to take credit for as much of the, the fighting of the first and the second and was one of uh, Meade's detractors later on, especially in the testimony to the Joint Committee. So General Meade had lost three aggressive commanders and a very good division commander, John Gibbon, in the Second Corps, one of Hancock's. And Gibbon had actually commanded the Second Corps a couple of times during the Battle of Gettysburg. Meade complained that he lacked the kind of corps commanders that he wanted. That was part of the reasoning, his reasoning for his caution in that was he needed corps commanders. He mentioned that a couple of times to his wife. But Meade appointed three replacement corps commanders during and after the Battle of Gettysburg. John Reynolds had been killed, and a general named Abner Doubleday took command of the First Corps and fought very well. He commanded the Corps very well at the first day, but General Meade did not like General Doubleday. So General Meade appointed General John Newton to command the First Corps. And this is before the first day was even over. He told uh, General, he said, General Newton, you know, get over here, I want you to command the First Corps. And Doubleday was somewhat perturbed by that, to say the least, because he had fought well. And he had, was not even given a chance. Once Meade heard Reynolds was dead, Doubleday was in command. That was it. 
uh, AA was going to be replaced. Well, Newton was an engineer, as was General Meade, but Newton didn't have a, an aggressive kind of not the John Reynolds reputation. So here you have a lesser general now commanding the First Corps. With Hancock, very aggressive general, out of action on the third with a serious injury, General Meade, instead of choosing a number of very capable division commanders who were at Gettysburg, appointed General, John, uh, General William Hayes to command the Second Corps. William Hayes is like an unknown quantity. Uh, he certainly was not an aggressive officer. He was not well-known. He did not have a good reputation. Uh, he was, just happened to be there, and I, we don't really know. There's not a lot about William Hayes out there. Uh, we talk about him. We got his picture in there. But he was at Gettysburg on the third day. In what capacity? I have never really found any information on that. But Meade appointed him a rather wishy-washy general officer uh, over some officers who had proven themselves at Gettysburg. So you've got, now you've got Newton, not, a, not an aggressive officer. You've got William Hayes, not an aggressive officer. And then with Sickles out of action, Sickles was seriously wounded on the second day. John French suddenly, William French, suddenly came back into the picture. And French was named by Meade to command the Third Corps. French was another one of these non-performers. He just was not an outstanding commander. He didn't look like he was slightly overweight. And none of these three officers that Meade appointed, he could virtually had carte blanche over who he could put in command. He put three rather mundane, rather average commanders to replace three aggressive officers. And then he complained that he didn't have aggressive corps commanders when three of those men he appointed. So it's kind of hard to understand. If he wanted aggressive officers, he certainly had more aggressive officers he could have appointed than um, Newton, Hayes, and French. So did, when the time came to decide, did he take a vote among his generals? General did we attack Me or not? General Meade on the 12th of July, after both armies were kind of facing each other, Lee had dug into his very long line, and Meade had actually dug a very strong line also, because Meade was at points expecting to be attacked. Hard as that may be to believe, but Meade actually had sent out message traffic on the 12th. On the 12th of July, General Meade sent a message to his boss, General Halleck, in Washington, D.C that he would attack the following day, which would be the, the 13th. He would attack Lee the following day if nothing interfered. If nothing came up, literally, I will attack. That evening of the 12th, Meade called his corps commanders into his headquarters. and. He presented, this is a fascinating, this meeting, this council of war was a fascinating event because somehow Meade was able to present a situation, okay, Lee is over here, we're here, and he slightly exaggerated when he said, we really haven't conducted enough reconnaissance. I don't really know what his position, what he's doing. Should we attack without knowing a lot of information? Should we attack? Or should we wait 
and do further reconnaissance and find out exactly what Lee's got over there, he was able to convince his corps commanders to vote against attacking the following day. Yet he was also able to say that he was in favor of an attack. So the two are really at odds with each other, but that's exactly what he did. So he came off as, okay, I put it to my corps commanders for a vote. This is too important for me to just do what I want to do. So I put it to my corps commanders. They voted against attacking. I was in favor of an attack. Okay, he's the commander. I mean, the buck stopped with him. If he wants to attack, he can certainly order his corps commanders, we're going to attack tomorrow. As he had told his commander, he didn't tell Halleck, I need to do more reconnaissance. He said, I will attack unless something intervenes. Well, he intervened himself. So he had his subordinate commanders, those corps commanders, vote most of them. There were three voted for attacking. General Wadsworth, who represented the First Corps because General Newton was ill at the time, General Pleasanton, who was the cavalry division commander, cavalry corps commander, and General Howard, who commanded the Eleventh Corps, whose corps had been badly handled at Chancellorsville and at Gettysburg. So Howard's decision was kind of brushed off as he just wanted to get back into things and to prove himself because he had done poorly in the last two battles. So Meade's corps commander said, no, we're, we're going to wait. And Meade told General Halleck very late the next day, upon meeting with my corps commanders, I made the determination that we would conduct more reconnaissance. So an opportunity to attack on the 12th was gone. It, it disappeared with the vote of the corps commanders. And the following day was a very miserable day. And Meade himself went out to see what he could see of the Confederate line which was virtually nothing. They learned nothing. Uh, so the 12th was gone in terms of being able to do anything. The 13th was gone. And on the evening of the 13th and the morning of the 14th, General Lee vacated his position and took his army across the river. I want to back up a little bit sure, and, and get you to describe what the retreat was like. Because first of all, you said that the Confederate soldiers came from all over all sorts of different directions to arrive at Gettysburg. Primarily. Uh, did they all leave by the same route? They left by a, a couple of routes. The wagon trains, of course, had to take the best roads. And they headed back sort of towards Chambersburg. And then they turned and took the Gap's Monterey Pass. They took some terrible roads. It was raining, uh, very heavy rain. And you can imagine the w hundreds and hundreds of wagons going over the same muddy roads. Um, wagons broke down. Wounded men who couldn't go on any further were left at farms along the way, or a lot of them died along the way. There were a number of routes, primarily two routes, basically, that the Confederate Army took to get back into Williamsport. Now, Meade had the option of directly following Lee's retreat, which would take him through mountain passes, which could be um, boxed in, Lee, Lee could occupy those passes and prevent Lee from following. Meade had an entire Army Corps, six Corps, actually go on a reconnaissance to follow Lee's main army, the infantry part of it, which was the part that was certainly was concerning to Meade, was the infantry and, and the, the armed part as opposed to the wagons with supplies and wounded. Although the cavalry was tasked to interdict, do what they could to uh, 
interfere with Lee's retreat in terms of pecking away at the wagon trains, which is what they did. And the whole Sixth Corps is moving to start with in pursuit, if you will, or following on a reconnaissance uh, of General Lee's army. And on another council of war that happened on the 4th of July, Meade made a determination that he would follow by a parallel route, which gave him better roads. He had to get down to Frederick to resupply his army because his army needed supplies too. And it would also put him in between Lee's army and Washington, which suddenly became a very paramount assignment for General Meade was to protect Washington. Uh, that, that became a lot more important than what he had said in the past, that Washington would fend for itself. They could take care of itself. And the army had been hampered by the requirement to protect Washington. Now Washington's protection was very important to General Meade. So he would follow on a parallel route, which meant he had to march farther and faster if he was going to catch up with Lee and engage him again prior to Lee crossing the river. Did Meade take his whole army? Eventually, in, in, yes. In pursuit? Yes. Yes, they did, kind of... Did they get reinforcements as they went? They received a considerable number of reinforcements, which we get into. There weren't a lot of regular, experienced troops left just sitting around doing nothing at the time. Uh, the defenses of Washington had already been stripped pretty bare of veteran units, or even uh, rookie units, inexperienced units, were, had been sent to Meade prior to Gettysburg. So there were some fairly veteran regiments that were sent to reinforce Meade's army. General Halleck was on everybody's case. Uh, General Couch up in Harrisburg, various other commanders to send everybody they could down to reinforce General Meade. And there were a couple of other Union forces moving, especially uh, to the north and the west. General Kelly is one of these who had troops that could have uh, cooperated with General Meade. Unfortunately, General Kelly's force was not under Meade's command. He still reported to General Halleck. General Couch's forces, there were a number of others who were sending reinforcements. They were actually put under Meade's command. And Meade was very hesitant to use any troops he did not consider to be veteran. So there were a lot of militia units, a lot of troops that were um, recruited for a very short amount of time for the emergency, emergency troops militia units that were basically given uniforms, muskets, and sent down to meet up with General Meade. They had no experience, no training, whatever. And Meade was very hesitant. He did not want to use those troops. He did not want to call them reinforcements either. If you send Meade a couple of thousand militia troops, inexperienced, untested troops, you're going to up his numbers by 2,000. But he does not consider them capable so he'd rather not have them with him than have to call, say, I've got 2,000 reinforcements. But he did get a considerable, he outnumbered Lee's force by a considerable number, which is something we pointed out, is the amount of troops that Meade was being sent. And they could be put into the, with the veteran outfits. They had rookie troops at Gettysburg, green troops who hadn't been in action, who performed very well at Gettysburg and they probably would have done the same thing if they'd have been integrated with the more veteran regiments. But Meade chose not to use them, but there were troops being sent and trying to get to Meade uh, during those, those 11 days 
uh, but he really did not acknowledge that they were what he wanted in terms of reinforcements. What was the retreat like? I mean, how, how, how long did the, was the line from start to finish? How fast did they move? Lee moved fairly quickly. He had wagon trains. He had his trains beginning to arrive at Williamsport on the 6th. He began his retreat late on the 4th. He had General Imboden's, the train that Imboden guarded, arrived in Williamsport on the 6th and actually fought off a Union cavalry attack by General John Buford's troopers that day. And that part of the attack, part of the troops that fought Buford off were wounded um, Teamsters, Wagoneers, they called it the Wagoneers fight. Uh, some, some accounts call it that. And they was able to throw together troops until Confederate reinforcements were, began arriving and actually uh, kept Buford from getting into Williamsport. It was, so the Confederates actually moved fairly quickly and they moved into the Hagerstown region in it, around Hagerstown as opposed to Williamsport. And then they moved into the Williamsport line around the 11th, 10th, 11th, uh, they began occupying what became Lee's line at Williamsport. General Meade's men had to march farther, and some of them remained or were not really far from Gettysburg, even on the 7th of July. So for troops that had to move quickly in order to march farther to get into a position to give Lee trouble uh, at Williamsport or even in the Hagerstown, in that area, because there was no certainty of exactly where Lee was going to be in place other than they could ford at Williamsport. That was the primary ford for General Lee and the pontoon bridge, which had been at Falling Waters and would be reestablished there. So General Meade, Meade's troops made really very good progress on the 7th, the 8th, and the 9th and began arriving outside of Williamsport in their area where their line would become um, on the 10th and the 11th. And they were pretty much in position by late on the 11th or the 12th. And then they just hung out and waited? Meade dug in. Uh, that's something you don't see a lot in the books is how much uh, there are regimental accounts and individual diaries and accounts that we, we used uh, for research that talk about digging in, digging in, digging in. This is a Union Army, not the Confederates. The Union Army, which is supposed to be attacking, they're digging in, and they talk, it, these regimental accounts, and we dug in, and we dug breastworks, and we did that, and we dug in on the 11th and the 12th and even into the 13th. So General Meade was very concerned that General Lee would attack him. He sent out message traffic to his corps commanders on the evening of the 12th saying, be prepared for an attack. He had his chief engineer observe and, uh, and do a, and visit the various corps, his corps, to make sure their defenses were good and in, in proper and in place and that they were in the right position. So you would think that his chief engineer, who also was a very good reconnaissance type officer, instead of observing Lee's line, this is the guy we're going to attack, this is the guy we're supposed to defeat, Meade's got him observing and visiting his own troops, making sure his defensive position is good enough to withstand an attack. If, if Meade had, now I, I know historians hate to speculate, but if Meade had attacked or had cut off Lee's retreat, could he have ended the war in 1863? That's what President Lincoln thought. Um, 
it wasn't so much. Uh, Mr. Lincoln made a statement about that if General Meade can continue that work he has so gloriously started at Gettysburg. Lincoln knew that Gettysburg was the start. It wasn't the end because Lee's army was still out there. Oh, people didn't think the war was over after Gettysburg? And the populace, another one of the areas is we try to cover the newspaper accounts. Yeah, I see you have a lot of newspaper uh, sources in the back. There. And some of those, you kind of wonder if the reporters, if they were actually at the same place or were they just telling some stories? Because some of the accounts are for, from the Union side. There was a victory, a great victory at Gettysburg. How great a victory it was, was really well exaggerated. Whereas the Southern, Southern populace didn't get that much information. It took a long time even for the news of the battle to reach Richmond. And at first it was a great victory. And there were thousands of Yankee captured and thousands of artillery pieces captured. And then it slowly, as the information began trickling in and the accounts came in, they found out that it wasn't quite what they had hoped for. I, so. have, to, I have to ask you something else that's late in your book. You say, President Jefferson Davis sent his uh, Secretary of State Judah Benjamin to seek the blessing of Pope Pius IX in Rome for an independent confederacy. The Holy Pontiff was sympathetic, especially since he viewed the plight of the confederacy similar to his own threatened papal states. They dragged the Pope into this. Yeah. The, the confederacy went to anybody they could. The, the British, the French, they knew they would need support. Um, a lot of a lot of supplies had come from England uh, that helped sustain the Confederate. And actually getting any kind of foreign recognition was certainly would have been a tremendous asset. And the Pope of all And people. the Pope was one of those individuals who could provide legitimacy to the Confederacy. And if one country or one area, the Vatican, whatever, recognized the Confederacy, that might open the door to either more supplies, intervention, or some type of, you could see, uh, mediation from another country. And the Confederacy didn't have to win a war. They didn't have to occupy the North. They didn't have to do any of that. All they had to do was be recognized as a legitimate nation, which Mr. Lincoln certainly wasn't going to do. Speaking of Abraham Lincoln, so how did he react when he got the word that Lee had gotten away. He was distraught, to say the least. Um, his Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, uh, kept a fantastic diary. And he just, all the accounts talk about Mr. Lincoln just being, Lincoln had said, we had them in the palm of our hands and we let them go. And Mr. Lincoln, one of his secretaries, John Hay, wrote in his diary that Mr. Lincoln thought about going down to Williamsport and taking command of himself, by himself, that he would have been able to bag Lee's army. And Hay said, and I think he probably could have. There was a tremendous amount. Um, Secretary Stanton, uh, whose quote is taken, is, the is our title, he made a comment about to literally that we will support General Meade, but never has there been such an opportunity that was not acted upon? It was vehement. Mr. Lincoln wrote a letter on the 14th, the day Lee crossed, to General Meade, expressing his frustration, his disappointment. And the letter is included in the book. 
we have that letter. Um, Mr. Lincoln thought about it, folded it, put it in an envelope, and never sent it to General Meade. Why didn't he fire Meade? He fired the others. Later, later that year, Secretary Wells asked the same question because General Meade was, was just not going after Lee with the aggressiveness that, that they had hoped for in Washington. And they said, well, why don't, why don't you fire General Meade? Why do you still have Meade? And Mr. Lincoln said, who among them is better? There was nobody else. There was no other officer that stood out in the Army of the Potomac or in the East that stood out as being the guy that could fix the problem, that could get Meade going, or that could take over. And, and Mr. Lincoln said that I'm afraid that if I replace General Meade, it would cause more problems than keeping him there. It would disrupt that army. It would. He did take two of the infantry corps away and send them in Sherman's direction, General Sherman's direction. The 11th and 12th Corps were taken um, from the Army of the Potomac and sent to Sherman's army in September, I believe it was. Now, General Lee had sent General Longstreet's corps, that's one-third of his army, he had sent Longstreet's corps down to General Bragg to reinforce Bragg, and he fought at Chickamauga in September of that year. So here's Lee's small army, 45, 50,000 men at the most by that time, losing a third of its strength. And of course, Washington, the authorities, knew that Longstreet was no longer with General Lee. Why can't, why can't General Meade, why can't he get Lee? Why can't he engage him? What's keeping him from doing it? And throughout that period, Mr. Lincoln was very frustrated um, that General Meade was unable to continue what had begun at Gettysburg. There were political reasons, too. General Meade was perceived in the North as a hero, the victor of Gettysburg. And you really want to relieve the victor of Gettysburg of his command? Unfortunately, we're going to have to stop there. I wish we could keep talking, but we're out of time. We've been speaking with Richard Schaus. He is the co-author of this book, Lee is Trapped and Must Be Taken, 11 Fateful Days After Gettysburg. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.